Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Someone has said, That if the New Testament were a ring with many jewels, the book of Romans would be the largest and the most beautiful gem. And on the surface of that gem, the most wondrous facet would be this eighth chapter. Romans chapter 8 is like the top of a majestic mountain with the beautiful valleys of chapter 1 through 7 on one side, and the chapters 9 through 6 on the other side, we have climbed to the top of a theological mountain. And now I'm inviting you to soak in the sights and breathe the rarefied air. I don't know if any of you have ever been to the top of a 14er here in Colorado, or you've even driven up to the top of of Pikes Peak, and you see the amazing beauty and splendor. Paul has concluded the seventh chapter with a cry that the victorious Christian living can only come through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, all of chapter 8 is like a commentary on a single verse in the Bible. It's John chapter 5 verse 24 where Jesus says, I assure you, those who listen to my message and believe in God and believe that God has sent me, has eternal life, they will never be condemned for their sins, but they have passed from death to life. That single sentence is supposed to awaken in you a sense of joy and celebration. Louisa Tarrington expressed the wish of millions when she wrote, quote, I wish there were some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where all our mistakes and heartaches And all our poor, selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door, never to be put on again. Haven't you ever wished for such a place? Haven't you ever wished that such a place existed where you could start all over again, where all of your sin could be forgiven, where your guilt could be cleansed, where you could be reconciled to God? Well, guess what? I believe there is, but it isn't really a place as much as it is a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible declares, that Jesus can give you an opportunity to start again. 
in Christ, you can have not just a forgiven life. If that were the only thing that you got, it would be worth it. But it is a forgiven life that's coupled with a fulfilled life. You know, this last week, my wife and I were at, of all places, Disneyland, and it's supposed to be the happiest place on the earth. And in many sense, in many ways, it, it really is. When we were there, we saw Muslims from Kuwait and Qatar. We saw observant Jews. We saw Christians. We saw clearly unbelievers and make-believers. We saw all kinds of people from all kinds of walks of life with all kinds of different worldviews. They all gathered in one place in the hopes of having fun. And there is fun. And there is even a sense of fulfillment, but it doesn't last. You see, if we look back on the slope where we've just climbed, we saw the great theme of the book, the just shall live by faith. That's how Paul starts the book of Romans. And remember what I've already told you, justification is the act of God the Father, whereby he counts our sins to be Christ's, and Christ's righteousness to be ours. Like it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, if any person's in Christ, they're a new creation. And so righteousness is the opposite of condemnation. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. It implies deliverance from the curse of God because that curse was placed on Jesus, according to Galatians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. It means forgiveness full and free, Romans chapter 4, verse 6. It's God's free gift, the fruit of sovereign grace, and not any way the result of human goodness or accomplishment, Romans 3, 24, Romans 5, 5, Romans 5, 8 through 9. Paul has written that it brings us peace. For our soul in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. It's not just the absence of conflict. But it is a present settled peace. A peace that passes all understanding. It's the peace from God. And it's peace with God. So justification and sanctification. Even though they are distinct. They're they're never separate, but they stand in the closest possible relationship to one another. Remember, the book of Romans has asked and answered the question, how is the miserable sinner saved? By grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It comes from Jesus. We're justified by the Lord Jesus. The next question that Paul asks What happens after the sinner is saved? The answer, sanctification. Salvation is accomplished by God through Christ. Sanctification is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, Paul... Paul's answer for the concerned saint is, will the the sinner remain saved? That's the question. Will the sinner remain saved? And it's probably a question that you've asked yourself. Hey, look, I know that I'm saved, but 
Am I going to stay that way? Can you imagine you show up at heaven's door only to be kicked out later? That doesn't sound right. People ask me all the time, how do I know that if I go to heaven, I'll stay in heaven? I say the answer is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, for whom he did, well, it says in 1 John chapter 3, oh, now I'm going to have to turn there. I just had a brain freeze. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God and such we are and it does not yet appear what we shall be but we know this that when he shall appear we shall be like him. In what way will we be like him? We'll be saved. We'll be glorified. We will reflect not only the mind of Christ but the heart of Christ. And so, again, the question, what happens after the sinner is saved? The answer is sanctification. And so here in the chapter, Paul asks and answers the question, will we remain saved? The answer is, of course, we're preserved by the Spirit. By the way, Paul has mentioned the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans in the first seven chapters four times. Now, in the 8th chapter of Romans, Paul will either directly or indirectly refer to the Holy Spirit 19 times. The book of Romans is a book about salvation. This chapter brings salvation into a sharp and clear focus. And so, if you've ever wanted to know the truth about salvation, this is it. We've been made alive by the Holy Spirit. We have assurance and confidence and security. The perfect sacrifice of Jesus redirects God's wrath and frees the sinners from judgment. And the perfect sanctification of the Holy Spirit ensures that the work begun while with Jesus will continue. This is why elsewhere he says that he who's begun a good work in you will see it through to the day of the Lord Jesus. And so this is the amazing truth. We're saved by grace through faith. We're kept by faith. Having begun in the spirit, we cannot be made whole or perfect or complete apart from the spirit. Or apart from Christ. Or with some form of self-preservation. And when I use the term self-preservation, I mean something that you do that preserves the life that's within you. The Spirit of God is the agent of preservation. It is the Holy Spirit who declares us not guilty in chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. It's the Holy Spirit who imparts new life in chapter 8 verses 5 through 17. It is the Holy Spirit's obligation to never leave in Romans 8 verses 18 through 39. So we can divide this chapter into three basic headings. The Holy Spirit's declaration. Not guilty, verses 1 through 4. The Holy Spirit's impartation. New life, in verses 5 through 17. The Holy Spirit's obligation. I'll never leave you. I'll never, ever leave you. See, this is so exciting. Because you may have grown up in a world where you had a mother or a father or a brother or a sister or a wife or a husband who promised that they would never leave you. 
or a job that you would always have, some sense of assurance that would always be there time after time. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Now the Holy Spirit makes the same promise in chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. Now I want you to think this through. Just do a quick rendering in your own brain. If you're not guilty, if you have new life, and if the new life is kept and sustained and maintained by the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? What does that mean for you? It means security. It means confidence. It means wholeness. It means assurance. It means protection. It means freedom from doubt. In Wilmington's Guide to the Bible, the author gives seven reasons why the believer will remain secure in God's glorious salvation. Number one, the believer has a new position. The Christian is in Christ, verses 1 through 4. Wilmington makes this note. He says, quote, We observe Paul does not say there is no fault or sin or imperfection. He writes, No condemnation. We also observe the time element. It is now. No condemnation. New position. New, and then guess what? New guest. That's number two. The Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 5 through 13. And number three, Christians have a new adoption. We're adopted by the Father in Romans 8, 14 through 17. Number four, we have a new expectation in Romans 8 through 18 through 25. That is a full and final redemption, a brand new creation. This includes eventually for the, for the Christian a new body. A glorified body. And number five, we have a new prayer helper in Romans 8 through 26. And number six, we have a new knowledge in Romans 8, 28. And number seven, we have new goals in Romans 8, 29 through 39. So let's, again, backtrack just for a moment to where we are. Verse one, you won't be condemned for sin. Verse two, you need not be controlled by sin. Verses 3 and 4. You better not continue in sin. Another way we could put that is, you need not be content, continue in sin. You don't have to be condemned for your sin. You don't have to be controlled by your sin. You don't have to continue in sin. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Each word in the passage deserves careful consideration. The Spirit-filled life is only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't live the Spirit-filled life by going to church. You can't live the Spirit-filled life by just simply opening up a Bible. You can't live the Spirit-filled life by memorizing everything in the Bible. The Spirit-filled life is one that is identified by, governed by, imparted by the Spirit. Therefore, when it says, there is therefore, refers all the way back 
to chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. Paul has made a complex argument for the first seven chapters. He refers back to those first seven chapters in the light of the hopeless condition of humanity apart from Jesus. There's no hope. But with Jesus, there is hope. Whatsoever because of our sins and lost condition. In other words, I guess here's what I would say. Therefore, if we're to have any hope, our hope must be in Christ. Here's Paul's presentation of the problem. We're sinners. Here's Paul's presentation of the solution. You can have Jesus. There are about a dozen Greek words that translate the word now. There is therefore now. In our English New Testament, they're usually from a resumptive word. It's the word that annoys you the most when I'm speaking. Because I'm always saying, in other words, that's another word for now. In other words... Here the Greek word is noon. It means now in the present time as opposed to the past or the future. Paul's emphasis is on the fact. And I want you to note that. The fact that you don't have to wait till you get to heaven to know whether or not you're going to make it to heaven. I was standing in line at a Starbucks one day and two people were arguing about whether or not they were going to go to heaven. And one person turned to the other person and said, well, I guess we're just, I'm going to have to die and wait and see. And I, I couldn't help myself. I said, it's too late. That's not the time to find out. You need to know ahead of time. You need to know that you're saved now. Freedom from condemnation is an experience that can be enjoyed in the here and the now. Someone wrote, it is the happy lot of all who are in Christ. So what does the expression, no condemnation, mean? I've defined this word many times, but let me do it for you again. Condemnation is the judicial pronouncement of guilt. When it says there is therefore now no condemnation, no judicial pronouncement of guilt, there will never be a time for the person who knows and loves, who's experienced a right relationship with God and Christ to stand before God and God will bring the gavel down and say, I find you guilty of sin against me and against everybody else. There's no judicial pronouncement of guilt. The Greek word is kata, krima. The simple term krima means judgment. Kata is intensive. It's translated condemned in Mark 16, 16. It's translated judged in Romans 14, 13. There is a guilt and a condemnation that comes from crimes that are committed. 
There is a guilt and a condemnation that comes when you are under the law. Remember, the believer has a new relationship to the law. Believers are no longer under the divine death sentence for sins and crimes against God. This is Paul's way of saying, we no longer qualify for judgment. Why? Because we're in Christ. We are in Christ. The law cannot claim you, verse 2. Jesus told us in John 3.16 that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The word perish means ruined or lost. He who believes in him is not condemned, John 3.18. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me as everlasting life shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life, John 5.24. Have you ever thought to yourself, or have you ever said out loud, when you thought no one was listening, I could go to hell for that. This is going to condemn me to hell forever. Paul's statement, the true Christian, and when I use the term true, I mean true as opposed to false. You see, there are people who claim to be Christians, but they're really not. There are true believers and there are make-believers, but the true Christian cannot go to hell. No one will be in heaven accidentally. And no one will be in hell accidentally. Do you realize that every rotten, every filthy, every sinful, every horrible, every inexcusable, every unbelievable thing that you have ever done will not sentence you to hell? There is no conditions attached to the freedom from condemnation. Grace writes an unconditional guarantee. We have more freedom. We have more than freedom from God's wrath and judgment. This is what Paul's saying. This is more than just freedom from God's judgment. We have a positive justification for life. Christians can and do fail. But there's no condemnation. One writer says, quote, Deliverance from divine condemnation does not mean deliverance from divine discipline. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges or chastens every son whom he receives, Roman, or Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Nor does deliverance from God's condemnation mean escape from accountability to him. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that also he will reap. Are we accountable to God? The answer is yes. Can we be disciplined by God? The answer is yes. Will there ever be the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes committed? The answer is no. To those who are in Christ Jesus. What in the world does that mean? The expression is used 40 times in the Greek New Testament. When we turn to Christ and we receive Christ, the New Testament says we are in Christ. And by the way, the Old Testament gives an excellent illustration. 
This week when I was on the plane and I was flying, I turned on my old, old CD of jars of clay. I'm listening. Rain, rain on my face. It hasn't stopped raining for days. My world is a flood. Slowly I become one with the mud. I was thinking of Romans 8. That's it. Think about Noah. Noah was instructed by God to build an ark to escape judgment. Then an invitation was extended. God spoke to Noah. Come thou and all thy house into the ark. It says in Genesis chapter 7 verse 1. And the scripture says what might be a throwaway verse for many of you. Now the ark was pitched within and without. With pitch. Within and without of course means inside and outside in old King James. The word for pitch is absolutely fascinating in the original language. The word translated pitch is the same word. It's the identical word that's used elsewhere for atonement. You know what the pitch is. It was that water-resistant stuff that glues the ark together. Between the saved and the ark and the waters of judgment... On the outside was wood and pitch. And once Noah and his family were safely inside the ark, we read in Genesis chapter 7 verse 16, the Lord shut him in. Now this is complete assurance and and complete security. The Lord didn't say, okay dudes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take eight nails I want you to hammer them against the ark. I want you to get seat belts. And I want you to hold on for dear life. Because a flood is coming. The whole world is going to be destroyed by a flood. Take the nails. Hold on for dear life. And as long as you and your family hold on, you'll be saved. It's not like Disneyland where they say, Okay, keep your hands and your feet on the inside. During the ride, don't jump out. What? What? Somebody would do that? Who would do such a thing? The Lord shut them in. What the ark meant for Noah, Jesus means for the believer. Just like Noah and his family are in the ark, you are in Christ. Let me just be blunt. Do you think that if you were in a massive flood surrounded by raging waters floating on a piece of debris, would that be different from being inside the ark? Let me just be blunt again. Do you think the people inside the ark knew they were inside the ark? You're laughing because it's such an obviously stupid question. Do you think the people on the outside are going, we're not in there, we're not in there. Of course they know that. Are you in Christ? Are you in a place where you've escaped the wrath, the condemnation, the judgment? 
Are you in Christ? Are you in that still place where the outside storm is raging? Are you in that place where you can see and recognize that you live in a world that's destined for judgment? But are you in that safe place? Millions of Christians wonder if they've said something or done something that disqualifies them from heaven. But they fail to remember what qualified them in the first place. Because they're in Christ. There is no condemnation in regards to sin. Because we are in Christ. In Adam, there remains condemnation. William MacDonald points out, quote, That we are as free from condemnation as he is. I want you to hold that thought for just a moment because it's a profound thought. You are just as innocent as Jesus. You are just as guiltless as Jesus. You are just as righteous as Jesus because you are in Jesus. W.N. Tompkins said we could hurl out this challenge. Quote, reach my blessed Savior first. Take him from God's esteem. Prove Jesus bears one spot of sin. Then tell me I'm unclean. It's his way of saying, if you can find fault in Jesus, then you can find fault in me. If you can find the absence of mercy and grace, righteousness and trust, if you can find in Jesus something disqualifying, then you can find it in me. And that's just the verse, that's just the first verse. Now we've got to hurry. Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Paul's statement, the law cannot claim you. The law is a given principle that acts in a consistent way. The law of sin and death was described in chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. The law no longer has jurisdiction. Now, if you are a non-lawyer or a non-law enforcement person, you may not understand the term jurisdiction. Remember, jurisdiction is the power or the right of a court or an authority to compel you to do something. Paul writes, the law can no longer compel you to be condemned. Because you're dead to the law. Chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become Dead to the law. This is Paul's way of saying, you don't have to be controlled by sin. The next time your husband or your wife or your child says to you, I couldn't help it, I'm controlled by sin. I'm manipulated by sin. Sin made me do it. What's the right answer? Are you in Christ? Because if you just say, well, you're right. Sin did make you do it. That might be compelling reason to believe that maybe you're not in Christ. But if you are in Christ, you don't have to be controlled by sin. You can be controlled. Look what it says. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free 
from the law of sin and death. Here's Paul's invitation. You can be controlled by the Holy Spirit. You can be defined, filled, guided, empowered. Sin has been condemned in the flesh. Condemned, but not removed. Paul is telling us that there's a higher power and that there's a greater power in you. Most of us are familiar with the, with the, the idea of competing laws. Again, Disneyland, the law of gravity. There are objects that are pulled to the earth. The earth pulls you to the surface of the planet. Now, by the way, when a plane takes off, it defies the law of gravity. There's another law at work. The law of energy, the law of thrust, the law of displacement. The plane, by the way, is at the mercy of gravity. When the laws of energy, thrust, and displacement are no longer viable... The plane plummets to the earth. The plane won't fly if the engines aren't on. If there isn't a sufficient amount of fuel in the plane, it will hurtle to the earth. The spirit of life is a different law inside of you, higher and greater than the spirit of law and death. So the spirit of life means you don't have to be dead. That is dead to God. That means dead to the things of God. Many of you know the names of God. And you know that the names of God reveal something about the character of God. You may have done a study where you discover words for God like El and Elah and Elohim and El Shaddai. God Almighty. Um, The same is true of Jesus the Son. Remember there are many titles that are given to Jesus. He is wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Just like there are multiple names for the Father and there are multiple names for the Son, there are multiple names given for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth in John 14, 17, so that you don't have to be deceived. The Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Faith in 2 Corinthians 4.13. So you don't have to be discouraged. The the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Grace in Hebrews 10.29. And for that reason, you don't have to be disgruntled. The Spirit is called the Spirit of Holiness in Romans chapter 1 verse 4. So you don't have to be defiled. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of a sound mind in 2 Timothy 1.7. So you don't have to be agitated, disrupted, disturbed in your thinking. The the character and the characteristics of the Holy Spirit point people to Jesus and they point people away from sin. And that's one of the reasons why you know, you know, you know that the Holy Spirit is inside of you. The Holy Spirit inside of you goes, "Look, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Look away, look away from sin, don't look. When my grandchildren were here, they watched Disney specials. And sometimes even in the Disney specials, there's the wicked queen. And so when it comes to the awful part of the video, Jaden covers her eyes and she goes, don't look, don't look, don't look. She knows that there's some things that are a problem to look at. The Holy Spirit inside of you goes, don't look, don't look, look away, look away. That's the Holy Spirit inside of you. 
the character and the characteristics of the Holy Spirit say, look at Jesus and look away from sin. The characteristics of sin and death will drag you down and suffocate you. So the Bible speaks of the Father's knowing and calling and choosing. The Bible speaks of the Son's saving. The Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit's convicting of sin, regenerating and sanctifying the sinner. And so Paul begins to introduce us into the wonderful world of how the Father and the Son And the Holy Spirit are inside of you, working inside of you, changing you. And so in verse 3, he says, you better not continue in sin for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Do you understand what Paul's writing? Paul is saying, grace succeeds where the law failed. The rules couldn't make you different. Wow, if there was a a rule that says everybody has to be different, well, then everybody would be different, right? What if there was a rule that said you have to be nice to your sister? Would that mean every sister would be nice to every other sister? We already know the answer, don't we? Because there's a different law inside of you. There's a law that says, We are family. I've got all my sisters with me. And then there's another law that goes, Oh, I hate her. Her hair is always perfect. And she can wear that dress. And I can't. And so there's this turmoil. Dragging you down. And note. Jesus didn't simply die for our sins. Jesus didn't simply die for what we've done. Jesus died for who we are. What we really are. When nobody else is looking. When no one else climbs inside of our head. And so. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. Look what it, read it for yourself. Jesus condemned sin. Note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Jesus forgave sin. He condemned it. Now, whenever you see the word S-I-N, it's speaking of the sin nature. It's speaking of the propensity to sin. You see, sins, those are the things that you do. They can be forgiven. Sins are forgiven. The sin nature is condemned. Look at verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Remember what we've already learned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The question that comes up in everybody's brain is, well, does this mean that the law can condemn me? The answer is no, because Jesus was already condemned on the cross of Calvary. 
The law cannot save you. Everyone is guilty. There's none righteous. Paul has already written about that. The law can condemn those who reject forgiveness. Can the law condemn anyone? Yes. Who can the law condemn? The law can condemn the person who says, I don't want Jesus. I don't want Jesus. I don't want Christ. I don't want Jesus. I don't want Christianity. I don't want that. That's not what I want. What do you want? I want to be forgiven. Okay. It's good that you want to be forgiven. I want to be forgiven without a savior. There is no forgiveness apart from Christ. That's the bad news. That's why the bad news is so different from the good news. That's why the good news is that Jesus forgives sinners. And so the law condemns those who reject forgiveness and those who reject Christ. The sinner who rejects Christ embraces the law. But imagine the person says, look, I don't want Jesus and I don't want the law. Now, again, for anyone who's ever been a judge or a lawyer or a law enforcement officer, for the criminal who says, the law has no jurisdiction over me. What's the typical answer? Put your hands behind your back. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. In other words, does the criminal have to recognize the jurisdiction of the court? No. All the court needs is the ability to enforce its order. By the way, do the courts have the ability to enforce their orders? The answer is yes. Does the sovereign king of the universe have both the authority and the ability and the resources to enforce his deeply held orders? The Bible says this, will not the God of the universe do what's right? Jesus died on the cross, Paul says, Jesus died on the cross. He suffered the wrath and the indignation that you so justly deserve. Jesus has paid the penalty for your sins. And since you are in Christ, God won't condemn you. For Noah and his family, when they were in the ark... Even though the flood destroyed all living creatures, at least land-born creatures, it didn't destroy them. Paul argues in verse 1, you are eternally free. Paul argues in verse 2, you are internally free. Paul argues in verses 3 and 4, we turn our lives over to the control of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to love him and to love each other. And now all of a sudden we're able to do what the law could never make us do. But what the Holy Spirit deeply desires to do, what human beings couldn't do, God will do. God did it in Christ. 
that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. That means everything that you are apart from Christ, but according to the spirit, that means everything that you're not, which the Holy Spirit has made you. Again, Chuck Swindoll says it great when he says, Consequently, we who trust in Christ for our salvation are given the perfect righteousness which we could not otherwise obtain. Of course, this does not mean that we are sinless. The book of Romans teaches just the opposite in chapter 6, verse 12, chapter 7, verse 14. But it does mean that since we're in God's righteous Son, we're positionally perfect. The Lord sees us through Christ. And therefore declares us righteous. But he also knows that our actual condition does not yet match our theological position. That's why he exhorts us to move towards holiness in the power of the Holy Spirit. He assumes as a fact that you're already walking according to the Spirit. We really have no choice in the matter. If we're believers, then the Holy Spirit has already decided to change us from the inside out, unquote. So, you have been given a pardon from sin. You have been given the power to overcome sin. You have been given perspective so that you could distance yourself from sin. So what does that mean? What does that translate to? It means that you really do have the right to love the Lord and to love each other. That you can forgive each other. That you can believe God's word. That you can appropriate the power of the, uh, to fight the good fight through the Holy Spirit. But millions of people live in fear that their past will come and condemn them. Does God always free us from the effects of the past? No. But he does free us from the penalty of death and hell. It's been removed forever. Jesus can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, remove the ball and chain of guilt and disappointment. God can change you. Robert Fulgham in his classic book, All I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, tells how in October, when he was a child, he and his friends would play hide-and-seek under the leaves. And there was always one kid who hid so well that nobody could find him. Eventually, the others came up on him, and when, he, when they finally showed up, they would explain to him that, look, this is a game. There's a hiding part, and there's the finding part. He wasn't supposed to hide in a way that he couldn't be found. And so Fulgham writes, quote, As I write this, the neighborhood game goes on and there's a kid under a pile of leaves in the yard just outside of our window. He's been there for a long time. And everybody else is found and they're going to give up on him over the, the base. I considered going out to the base and telling them where he was hiding. And then I thought about setting the leaves on fire to drive him out and say, Look, kid, just get found! To scare him so badly that he would run home and tell his mom. He says, It's really hard to know how to be helpful sometimes. That's so good. 
The reason why I bring it up is because some of us have been playing a kind of grown-up version of hide-and-seek. Hiding from God. You arrange the stack of leaves in the most clever fashion. You bury yourself under the dead debris that used to be alive. And you comfort yourself with the idea that God isn't really looking. That he can't really see you. But it's not true. He knows exactly where you are. David had come to grips with his own issues of hide and seek. In Psalm 139, verses 1 through 3, David wrote, O Lord, you've examined my heart. You know everything about me. You know when I sit down. You know when I stand up. You know my every thought. Whether close by or far away, you chart the path ahead of me and tell me when to stop. Every moment I am with you. If you don't know him, even though you don't sense his presence, he's with you. Every moment. Even though you might be playing some grand intellectual or emotional game with God of hide and seek. But if ever there was a time to be found, now is the time. It's to come out from under the leaves and say, here I am. I want to be found. I want to be forgiven. I want to be saved. I want to be redeemed and reconciled. Now's the day. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who's been hiding for so long. Lord, I pray that they would open their eyes and that they would look full into the wonderful face of Jesus. That they would allow God to find them. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would urge them to come to you Here on the top of the mountain of salvation. Here where you can breathe freely. Here where forgiveness and hope is a reality. Here where there can be joy and fulfillment. And so Heavenly Father I pray for that person. Who's been running and hiding. I pray that they would bow their head and their heart. And they would repeat that simple prayer. Heavenly Father. I know that I'm a sinner. I want to experience forgiveness and grace. I want to experience hope and life. I want to know that there's no condemnation for me. I want to know that I am in Christ, inside the ark, in the place of safety, so that when the storm stops and the clouds part and the waters recede and the land appears that I'll have a safe place to land in Jesus name Amen
Let's stand.